It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. The Esk win big on the field and then lose big off of it. Alexander claims it wasn't a cheap shot. And who was supposed to start in the game against Montreal for Calgary? Let's find out. Welcome everyone, Don Charbon along with Heath Graham tonight. Glad you could join our show. Heath, a lot to talk about from last week's games. Not to mention that can anyone figure out who's going to be a dominant team on a given night? It's pretty incredible that three weeks in, only one undefeated team. It's the uncertainty of the CFL that we all know and love. And the games this past week were certainly a prime example of anything can happen. You start with the uh, Elks in Vancouver. Edmonton puts up, again, strong offensive numbers. Scores only one touchdown. But with Joel Figaro out and Riker Matthews out on the British Columbia offensive line. The Lions can't protect Michael Riley. They don't get anything started and lose the football game to Edmonton 21 to 16 in front of their new owner. My biggest takeaway on this one, yes, Edmonton only scored one offensive touchdown, but they moved the ball around more like I was expecting them to do all season. Trevor Harris to Greg Ellingson finally got on track over 150 yards receiving, I believe, for him. So that's the connection that we were expecting to see at the beginning of the season. And uh, they finally got things rolling. Again, offensive red zone stats aren't great, but they put a lot of yards up and they got the win this time around. James Wilder, running back, picked up 127 yards on 22 carries, most significantly in that final drive of the game to put the game away with BC hoping for one more chance to get at the Elks. Edmonton just wouldn't avail. Give Harris credit, 26-31 for 296. One touchdown pass to Mike Jones. The problem, I think, still for the Elks is that inability to capitalize down inside the 25-yard line. They are getting field goals. They've got a phenomenal place kicker. But if... You take that out of the equation and just say, look, you need touchdowns to win in this league. Edmonton, to me, is still struggling. I think we need to look at that score, though, and consider Wilder did get them down to the one-yard line in that last minute, and they kind of they took a knee on the final play of the game. They punched that one in, even with 30 seconds left on the clock. You've now got 28 points and two red zone touchdowns. Does that change your opinion on them, or do you think it's that was kind of a, a garbage time and not really counting it? I think once you got inside that final minute and BC without any timeouts to stop them anymore, I think you now have entered the garbage time zone. And a touchdown on that would have just infuriated the Lions. I think Edmonton respectfully chose not to push the ball into the end zone. They do have to go back to Vancouver again to play them. They do not get them in Edmonton. So you better be polite a little bit because that's their house, not yours. And if you sort of stick it to them, when it's already decided, it's a little bit could come back to haunt you. And as far as BC's offense goes, as you mentioned, the offensive line didn't do a great job protecting Michael Riley. Brian Burnham has not had a game this season like we know he's capable of having. They've got some other 
key receivers, uh, Durant and, and Lucky Whitehead, have become really important parts of that offense as well. But I'm anticipating at some point in the near future that uh, Burnham is going to have the kind of game where he's a, a fantasy breaker, gets a couple of touchdowns, but he needs to get that rolling, I think, pretty soon. Brian Burnham, to me, is still a consummate receiver, runs his routes immaculately, has the hands to go with it. Problem is, if Michael Riley's on his butt, he doesn't complete too many passes, nor does he complete them when he can't see what he's throwing or where he's throwing. How how do the Lions get better on offensive line? We we knew that at the beginning of 2019 they were struggling mightily, and Mike Riley at that time was getting sacked five, six times a game. Yeah, it's an ongoing problem, unfortunately, for BC. And I had thought the offensive line was going to be a lot better this year than they were in 2019. I would say they're a bit better, but certainly not where they need to be uh, to be a, a upper echelon team in that West. One would think that if you've got a good coaching drafting system, between the two, you're going to have at least seven people available to you to play offensive line. It looks like to me, BC has five starters, and when two of them go out, that's it. They're done. I think that's a fair assessment, and I don't know if there's anybody out there in free agency that they can look at at this point in the season. I guess NFL camps have started, so you might get somebody that you can look at as a pickup from there when the time comes, but it's a glaring hole for them. And not just in in pass protection, but rushing the ball as well. They didn't have a very good game this time around. You know, looking at their stats, Shaq Cooper was the leading rusher with six carries, 35 yards, and uh, under 70 yards in total rushing for that team. So they can't even give Michael Riley a bit of a break and, and pound the ball. They're struggling there as well. Comes back to the offensive line. Exactly. Kwaeko Buotang was not even playing for Edmonton that night. And one would have thought that, okay, that's a huge loss. That means that BC can focus a little bit more on what's left. Well, what's left owned the trenches. Give Edmonton credit for that. You can't take anything away from how they played because they did everything they needed to do to win that game. They did. I guess the one positive I would say for BC is they seem to have solved their place-kicking woes. The new place kicker came in and I think he did a fantastic job, hit some key kicks for them. So that's a little bit of a positive direction, I, I would say, um, and certainly something that they had to had to look at that was a glaring hole in those first couple of games. The sad thing for me was that Amar Duman was there at the game. Now, he was introduced as the new owner of the Lions on August the 18th. I think that was such a positive thing for that franchise. You've got somebody who's younger, somebody who understands what's required of an ownership group in BC, marketing, reconnecting with the younger audience, all the stuff that we hear as buzzwords. This guy knows that that is a benchmark that he has to go through to get the crowds back. I think he's going to be an absolute positive, and he is sort of the, the beginning of the changing of the guard in a sense of the CFL ownership group. We've seen some changes before, but this is a real mark change. This is a person I feel that really is more of the younger generation's ilk. I certainly agree with you. He's very outgoing, very personable, and does bring that younger feel to it. And hopefully that's something that he can key on to drive up excitement and interest in BC. Uh, I'd love to see crowds of even 25, 30,000 on a regular basis in BC Place, I think would be excellent for the team and for the league. It might take some creative 
pricing structures and things like that to get there. We know the Elks are doing something similar at Commonwealth this year. And if that's going to drive people into the, into the games, it's something that is worthwhile investing in. Alouettes the next night are going into Calgary and the Alouettes become heavily favored because Bo Levi Mitchell is not going to play. Michael O'Connor was supposed to be the starting quarterback for the Stampeders, and we find out just before kickoff that Jake Mayer has been given the job. Now, Mayer was in street clothes the last time the Stampeders took the field. Bit of a shocker. However, having said that, I'm not the coach. After a very, very, very <laughs> difficult start where he threw two interceptions in the first quarter, Mayer settled down and led the Stampeders to the win. It was quite the debut. You're right. He did look shaky at the beginning, a little bit of nerves, but settled down through some great balls. And I don't know if he's the long-term solution. The second start to me is kind of a key. The first game, I think the, the defense doesn't always know what they're looking at. They didn't have a lot of tape on Jake Mayer and they're kind of guessing as to what he's going to do. Now that they've seen him in game action, the, the next game out here is going to be an important one to see. Um, he's going in against the Winnipeg defense coming up. We know that they can give quarterbacks fits, so we'll see what he brings to the table in the coming weeks. His stats won't be the type that you write home about. 16 to 29, 304 yards, though, is not bad. And he did get a touchdown. The bigger thing that I thought coming out of that game was that Montreal maybe had a little bit of comeuppance because after that Edmonton game, Vernon Adams Jr., their quarterback, was hinting that they hadn't even found their best game yet and that watch out when they do. Well, Calgary taught them a little lesson that at 0-2, we're still something to be uh, scared of. I guess maybe it was a bit naive for us all to think that the Alberta teams were going to start the season 0-3. We talked a lot about them both being 0-2 for the first time since the 1960s, and they proved that they weren't going to just roll over. Um, they both were facing some adversity, and... I think both teams did a really good job of stepping up and uh, and proving that they are still contenders despite that early struggle in those first two games. Um, Vernon Adams, like you said, he, he completed less than 50% of his passes, uh, two touchdowns, but one interception as well. And they came up a yard short. It could have been, it could have gone the other way and we'd be speaking completely different. And they just kind of ran out of time and space at the end of that one but there was a lot of missed opportunities leading up to that final exciting minute that uh, they had a chance to, to get themselves back in the game and, and didn't take advantage of. The part about the final play that kind of bugged me was that Eugene Lewis, though he made a fantastic effort to catch the ball, what I couldn't understand was why was he even close to that goal line? He should have driven the defensive back about 10 yards deep and then started to come back. And that way, if Vernon Adams Jr. is firing the ball to where he's taking two to three steps back, he's still well within the end zone as opposed to right at the goal line. You're playing with fire. Yeah, it's a, a, a situational awareness that was lacking on that final play. You know, you see something similar sometimes on a, a punt that goes over a receiver's head. Do you let it roll into the end zone or you scoop it up at, at the half yard line and get brought down at the two and you're looking at that long field? Things like that happen, but on a last play of the game, where a touchdown is going to win it for you, you're 100% correct. You have to be in that end zone. And the Alouettes all were waving their arms around thinking that maybe they did score, but it was very clear 
that he was nowhere near breaking the plane with that ball. Two trips in a row for Montreal and to Calgary. The last play of the game has to go up to the booth for review. The Alouettes have got to be smarting after this game because I'm almost certain that they would have been feeling that this was a game that they needed to win, could have won, should have won, but they just didn't play like they were going to win. You're right. With Bo Levi Mitchell on the sidelines, a new quarterback coming in, you have to take advantage of that situation. And the defense, I think, played well enough to keep Montreal in that game. The offense is the the thing that we thought was going to be the big weapon for Montreal this year. And they really didn't show up in that game like we were expecting. One of the bright lights, I think William Stanback had 82 yards rushing. Again, he looks like he's doing his job out there. But uh, as a whole, that Montreal offense has some improvements to make to be where we expect them to be. Jake Winnicka, again, another stalwart game. Eight receptions, 106 yards, and again, another touchdown. He is a touchdown machine. The one thing that I'm seeing with Vernon Adams Jr. is his predilection to throw deep. He doesn't like to throw the under route too often. He likes to go over the top, and that's a low percentage pass, even if you're a very accurate quarterback. He's going to have to learn to be a little bit more patient, I think, for this Alouette's offense to really gel. So many times, Stanback came out of the backfield, stood there wide open, nobody around him, and Adams threw it right over his head to the next guy down the field. You're right, and I'm not sure that the long ball fits into what Montreal has for a receiving core either. I think Eugene Lewis is quite capable of of running a deeper route, but Wenneke's not the fastest guy out there. Uh, BJ Cunningham is more of a, I think, a very good hands receiver, but I don't know if they've got that kind of deep threat that maybe Vernon Adams needs to feel more comfortable pushing those deep balls. We go to Saturday, and the first of the doubleheader, the Toronto Argonauts hosting the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, a rematch of the game from the week before, except this time it's the Argonauts that prevail 30-23. to And I thought Nick Arbuckle, 23-32, of 310 yards? He gave that offense a different look than what McLeod Bethel-Thompson brought. Uh, Thompson put up great numbers in the first game, struggled in the second game, and Arbuckle had come in and really only completed 3 out of 10 passes, so we didn't really know what that looked like, but he got the week as the first-string quarterback taking the, the important snaps in practice, and he delivered. He looked fantastic out there, in my opinion. Um, put up some great numbers. Winnipeg just kind of offensively laid an egg in this one, for lack of a better term. They just couldn't get things going. The defense must have been exhausted because the time of possession swayed very heavily towards the Argonauts. And you saw that in the dying minutes of the game. Winnipeg did score one touchdown uh, to Rashid Bailey to get them within a touchdown and kicked the ball deep and needed a stop. And I think at that point, that defense just had nothing left to give. And Toronto essentially ran out the clock for the win. One of the uh, biggest moments of that game happened in the second half when uh, Brandon Alexander unloaded on Devaris Daniels and what I thought was a cheap shot. And uh, uh, Alexander claimed he was it was just a football play, but from my watching of it, it looked like he put the forearm right into the helmet of Daniels. And I couldn't figure out why he was still in the game after that hit. I'm not talking about Daniels. I'm talking about Alexander. He should have been given the heave-ho and gone for that. You know, my 
allegiances to the Blue Bombers. Um, I do not agree with O'Shea and Alexander that it was a clean hit, that it was a football play. Uh, I certainly think that the 15-yard penalty was completely warranted. Things happen so quickly out there sometimes that we forget that the players are human. It was really a split-second decision. Um, Yes, I think the arm came up into a position that was very risky uh, for that hit. I don't know if I would necessarily agree that it should have been an, uh, an ejection from the play. Certainly not something that you see out of a player like Alexander often. And I think it was one of those things where it was a split second and he made a bad choice. I don't think it was malicious. I don't think he was out there trying to uh, to injure. I think it was just a, a bad time and a bad play. I would have tossed him. I think if you're going to send a message, he was defenseless. The ball wasn't there. Alexander needed to be off the field. And I probably wouldn't have argued with you if that was the call. Um, like I said, I, I stand by the decision on the 15-yard penalty. Um, I'm not saying it was a clean play, like, unfortunately, like O'Shea and Alexander are trying to claim. Um, that There was definitely more to it than that. And much like the NHL trying to eliminate headshots, I think football, especially with the reputation that football has as a heavy contact sport with a lot of concussions, plays like that need to be addressed and need to be cleaned up to protect the stars of the league and not endanger somebody's livelihood when you're going out there and laying somebody out like that. The nightcap on Saturday night was the Ottawa Red Blacks in Saskatchewan to take on the Rough Riders. Again, Ottawa's defense has nothing to be ashamed of. They played very well, even though the Rough Riders would rack up 400 yards of offense compared to Ottawa's 238. They only gave up the one touchdown. The rest of the time, it was Brett Lowther kicking field goals for the Rough Riders. Well into that third quarter, Ottawa was still mired in that result being unknown, and it wasn't until the beginning of the fourth quarter that the Riders started to pull away. Other than one Matt Nichols deep throw to Harris, he did not look like he could just sling the ball anytime he wanted to. Yeah, that Ottawa offense is is struggling. You're right, the defense kept them in it as long as they could. And much like that Winnipeg game, when the ball control just goes so much on one team's side, that defense just gets worn out by the end. And and hats off to them. They kept that game close. They kept Saskatchewan to field goals. They had a couple of plays that if they had gone their way could have completely changed the, the way that game was going. And unfortunately, on offense, Ottawa just couldn't muster anything to put up any kind of threat. Fajardo goes 30 of 35, which is a phenomenal night at the office, 321 yards, but no TDs, no picks. Maybe the offensive line isn't up to speed just yet. And Jason Moss, the offensive coordinator, is trying to get the ball out quickly all the time to protect Fajardo. But then again, he calls quarterback draws. So, hmm, six and one half dozen the other. I, I think one thing that, Fajardo has impressed me with so far this season is his scrambling and ability to run the ball. I think he's Vernon Adams can run the ball as well, but it's a different style of run. So I think Fajardo is probably the best scrambling quarterback in the league right now. He sees that opportunity when things open up in front of him. He's not afraid to tuck and run. And when he does, he gets 12, 15, 17 yards at a time. So 
he's a, a weapon, not just throwing the ball, but what he brings running really opens things up for them. Uh, haven't seen a big game out of William Powell running the ball yet for them, but they haven't really needed to either. Uh, Fajardo is kind of the the one-man show back there right now. And Second down. As we mentioned at the start of the podcast, the Elks won big in Vancouver, but they also lost big off the field. As of our recording, which is Tuesday night, 11 players now have come down with the positive test for COVID, which means that the game in Toronto now has been postponed. This all started with Sir Vincent Rogers announcing on Twitter that he had COVID and that this was a calling card from him for everybody to get vaccinated. From there, the numbers started to swell. By Sunday night, it was five that had it, four more Monday, and now two more, as of today, Tuesday, 11 positives. It really puts the Elks in a bind. And this is kind of an interesting thing too. Seven of the nine CFL teams now are requiring a COVID passport to come watch them play. The two outliers are the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Edmonton Elks. We are safe to now assume that the Elks did not reach the threshold of 85% of their players fully vaccinated. They are at risk right now of losing the game by default. It would go down as a one nothing win for Toronto. Um, it's a scheduling nightmare already. You're in a condensed 14-game season, and now you're trying to figure out where to squeeze that game in. Initially, they had talked about maybe trying to push it as far out as Tuesday of the following week. We now know that that's not going to happen. So they're looking at where and when they can make this game happen. It's potentially devastating for the Elks. They looked really good in that game in week three, got their first win of the season. All things seem to be going towards the direction that they wanted it to go. And now I'm thinking immediately of the Vancouver Canucks at the end of the NHL season and what a COVID outbreak on that team did to them. And again, you don't have the luxury of playing back-to-backs like you do in hockey. So if they are still struggling to get a team, a healthy team together in a week's time when they've got that next game going, then what happens? We know that the CFL is a gate-driven league. We know that the CFL does not want to lose a revenue opportunity. But exactly, where do you fit this game in? Buys are one thing, but how do they mesh? And the second thing is, Toronto is not the only team that plays at BMO Field, the Argonauts. They also have to share that field with the, the soccer team. My question at this point is, how many players does Edmonton need to get healthy in order to field their team? We don't know the extent of this spread yet. They're, they're at 11 players right now. We don't have all the numbers as to how many are vaccinated and what that looks like. So, you know, you, you look at last NFL season and the Denver Broncos got forced into a situation where they didn't have a healthy quarterback to play the game. But because of that situation, they still had to field a team. So does Edmonton end up in a similar situation where they're not bringing all of their cards to the table, but end up having to play? You have to bear some responsibility for what your team has done. If you default, how do you compensate the Argonauts for lost revenue? It doesn't make sense to me that you can request all fans to have their vaccines and not request the same for the players. The players should be under that same scrutiny that fans are. I can sit here and 
list off a million reasons why I think the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are not handling the situation well as well. I think there you are seeing some smaller crowds in some stadiums, but if you compare almost apples to apples, Winnipeg and Saskatchewan in their home dates, and there has been confirmed cases of COVID spread within Rough Rider games and within transportation to and from Rough Rider games, the Blue Bombers have had two home dates as well and have not had the same situation because they're saying if you don't show proof of vaccine you're not coming in these gates. I don't know what the numbers are for the teams as I mentioned earlier 85% of your team vaccinated is the threshold. I believe it was Montreal that said they did reach that threshold so there's one team that has come out and said hey if that happens to us our players are still going to get paid because we have reached that required number. It doesn't look like at this point the Elks are in that same situation. And at what point does peer pressure play into this? Because everybody wants to get a paycheck. And if somebody in your on your team is not getting vaccinated and you're sitting at 82 or 80%, what happens within the locker room? How do, how do guys view other guys that aren't bothering? Good on Sir Vincent Rogers for stepping up and acknowledging and encouraging. I think he's un, in a very tough situation. He's taking a very strong stance and a very public stance which they need in order to convince more people it doesn't matter to me where the message comes from as long as the message is getting through to people and if somebody of his caliber and as well respected on that team and as much of a leader as he is is now coming out and saying hey this happened to me i don't want to see it happen to anybody else get your vaccine i think that could be a positive that comes out of this whole situation seven out of nine teams are requiring covid passports and maybe there's going to be some peer pressure from some other governors to get these two teams on board because how is it that seven can go for this and the other two can't choose not to or won't? It does put the whole league at, at risk. We're, we're seeing what's happening for a, a team right now, and we also have seen what hap- has happened with some fans. So mitigating risk for everybody involved has to be at the forefront. I I know the importance of getting fans back in the stands and getting a season on the field this year, but we spent an awful lot of time talking about how to do it safely and asking your fans to be vaccinated to come uh, watch the games, I think, is the right approach. Getting back to games that will be played this week, Hamilton is plus 1.5 on the road in Montreal. This is a really important game for both of these teams at this point. Did Hamilton learn anything and did they wake up with their week off? Because they haven't shown, like the Cats team that we were expecting to see this season, through their first two games. I understand, I think, why it's only a 1.5 point spread on this one. Because Montreal showed great in game one, showed poorly in game number two, and... Hamilton still has that potential, right? They they could go off and score 50 points if things go right. Um, this was one of the games when we were previewing the season that I was always going to be amped up for was a Hamilton-Montreal game. I thought the potential to score points was going to be through the roof. And it still could happen, but from what we've seen in the first two weeks, I don't know, sorry, the first three weeks, I don't know who's going to be able to get even 35 points on the board at this point. 
I think what's been missed with the Hamilton Tiger Cats is that their deep threats are not playing. Braylon Addison and Devere Posey, neither one has been on the field yet. And that's limited then who's available to threaten any defense. And Brandon Banks can't do it by himself. That means that even if it's uh, Dane Evans, if he's starting, because right now as we record, Jeremiah Mazzoli was limited to practice on Tuesday. If it's Dane Evans, he's he's still got to have receivers to throw to. And and who scares you outside of Banks on that receiving core? Not really anybody. Jalen Acklin is an up-and-coming receiver, but not a huge threat. So you expect him to get a few catches and maybe a touchdown here or there, but not a game-breaker by any means. So uh, you're absolutely right. It's a, a team that needs to get some of those pieces back and figure out what they're doing on offense. Dane Evans might be a fresh look for them as well. I think if Mazzoli doesn't start, uh, we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes. Saturday, the BC Lions are in Ottawa, and BC is minus 2.5, so they're the favorites in that puppy. Boy, BC, if they don't get that offensive line sorted out, I think they're going to be in big trouble because I think Ottawa's defensive line can manhandle them. This could be a very low-scoring game. A 9-6 type game. I believe Ottawa getting that first win of the season was huge for them. How they played against Saskatchewan, again, their inability to sustain drives and put put points on the board is not going to have them be competitive in a lot of games this season. I stand by my prediction so far that Ottawa was going to be the worst team in the league. And until they show me otherwise, I'm still leaning towards BC in this one. I think they've got enough tools to eke out a win it might not be fancy it might not be a blowout but I think that uh, BC has the edge in this one I still wonder if Ottawa's defense can put up a touchdown if that could be the difference in the game you think back to that opening night against Edmonton and Abdul Kana gets 102 yards off a tip ball and goes the distance propelled them to a win it could be that type of game where okay we've got Great field goal kickers on both sides, but who scores the touchdown? The BC offense, the Ottawa offense, the BC defense, the Ottawa defense. Whoever gets that major may ultimately win. I always kind of root for those teams where the defense scoring points can be a difference maker in a game. It's an exciting aspect to it, and the way that Ottawa has played and with their offense struggling to sustain drives and stay on the field, that defense is going to get a lot of opportunities to make plays. Um, you know, an interception here or there, a forced fumble can really change things around and, and add some excitement to it. So you're right. I anticipate low scoring and a defensive score would be huge in the result for whichever team can put one together. For the first time this season, we're going to see a game on a Sunday night. The Stampeders are in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. Stampeders plus 5.5, which pretty much means that Winnipeg at home is favored by a touchdown. All these point spreads brought to us by Bet Regal. The question in my mind is Mayer a flash in the pan or is he legit? If he's legit, he has enough weapons and enough offense that I think he could scare the Blue Bombers. This will be the defining game, I think, for Jake Mayer. He needs to come out and establish and take control of the game early. If that Winnipeg defensive line can put some pressure on him, if Jefferson and Jeffcoat get in his head. It could be a long night for him. 
And once something like that happens, then a player like Adam Big Hill becomes a huge part of that defense. If you're keyed on where those defensive linemen are coming from and you miss a player of Adam Big Hill's caliber, either on a blitz or dropping back and making an interception, it could be a rough night. So he's got a lot to prove. This is his opportunity. And if he can get a result against a team with a defense of Winnipeg's caliber, it's a huge feather in his cap. Winnipeg's offense hasn't scared anyone yet. This could be, again, another game where if Winnipeg's defense scores a touchdown as they did against the Argonauts, this time it may be the difference, not the way they get back into the game. Caleros has the scrambling ability that Winnipeg needs. We saw that in their final 2019 game against Calgary. He escaped and threw a bomb to Darvin Adams in the corner of the end zone. He hasn't exploded like that yet. He's certainly been able to keep drives alive, keep plays alive with his feet. And they're sorely missing Andrew Harris still in that running game. If they don't get Oliveira running the ball well, it doesn't set them up well for success because, as we said, if they're they're trying to force the ball to Darvin Adams and not taking advantage of what a defense is giving them, then they're not being as successful as they potentially could be. Kamar Jordan is due for a breakout game at receiver for Calgary. This could be it because I, if anything that Toronto showed was that you can pick on Winnipeg's corners. If Mayer is allowed to do that, his offensive line holds up. It could be a very, very interesting football game and Winnipeg could be pushed to the limit. Yeah, a, a lot of important games, I think, this week. A lot of defining moments for some teams. That Hamilton-Montreal one is going to be huge. Again, it's a chance for Ottawa against BC to establish if they are going to present a challenge to any other team in the league. And this Winnipeg-Calgary one, Calgary looked vulnerable early on in the season and they, they struggled out of the gate. They got a big win last week against a very good Montreal team. So if they can pull this one off and get back to 500, drops Winnipeg down to 2-2 two and two as well. And that really tightens things up in the West. And after three weeks, things are starting to tighten up in our pick'em pool. Gromit 1996 and Dini 13 continue to lead with 16 points each. They both had a rough week last week going 1-3 and three and allowed some other people to get back in this. Our very own Don Charabin has now moved up into third place with 13 points after going an impressive 2-2 two and two in Pick'em this last week. Third down. Fantasy player picks again. I am proving that I know nothing of what I am doing, just that I do it. I think I finished ninth in our little... Uh, fantasy pool on DraftKings. It's not ours. It's one we participate in. And how does it feel to be the winner? Well, it's a big week for me coming off my first win. Um, I left some points out there. I was very happy to see Rashid Bailey put up some fantasy points for me late in a game that they had no business being in. He was sitting at 0.7 points and then 1.4 for a long, long time in that game on Saturday. So he uh, came on strong at the end there and launched me into first place. So it was a great feeling uh, for an otherwise disappointing week because the, the pickums didn't go my way. So everything this week is compressed a little bit because we only have three games. So starting out with quarterback and running back, uh, I'm going with Zach Caleros from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers at 7,900 for quarterback. And I am going with 
Chris Rainey for the BC Lions at 6,000 as running back. Wow, Chris Rainey. He did nothing after that opening kickoff against Edmonton. <laughs> he's ready for a big one here. This is going to get me. He's, he's good value. I'm saving money on Chris Rainey so I can load up somewhere else. Um, I think Caleros is, is due. I think having Darvin Adams back in the lineup does help him. And back at home after a tough loss in Toronto. So I'm expecting big things from him. And we talked a little bit about special teams in that BC Ottawa game and defenses and, and points coming from unlikely sources. And my hope is that Rainey busts one for me. I've got Zach Claris, Winnipeg Blue Bombers quarterback. Calgary's defense is ranked ninth by DraftKings. Kadeem Carey, though, going the other way for the Stampeders against Winnipeg. Toronto showed you can run against Winnipeg, and especially right up the middle. He is a value pick for me at 7,900. Let's go to receivers. Who have you got? This is where I mentioned I was saving up some money. So I am going with Brian Burnham. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I think he's due for a breakout game. He hasn't had that huge game for BC yet. I think a, a team like Ottawa might be a great time for him to break out. And sticking with the BC Lions, I am going with Lucky Whitehead. He has become a huge key to that offense. We saw him in Winnipeg in his rookie season being basically a return guy with a couple of big plays here or there. And he wanted to be part of an offense, and he's got his opportunity now. He has shown well so far this season. Uh, Burnham's at 9,900, so spending a lot on him and picking up Whitehead at 7,100. I too went with Lucky Whitehead. He's a type of receiver that if you put it out to the flat, he could go on his own the rest of the way. Darvin Adams is my other pick from the Blue Bombers. Calgary's defense ranked the worst. They do give up a lot of passing yards. And if Calaris is going to have a bounce back game, you know that Darvin Adams is going to figure in that. Flex. As you just said, Darvin Adams. Um, I didn't pick him in the wide receiver slot, but I've got him as my first pick in flex. I think they, like I said, forced the ball to him a little bit in, in his first game back. They've had an opportunity to settle in a little bit now, and he is ready and healthy, and he's going to pick up some yards. And on the other side in that game, I have Markeith Ambles for Calgary at 6,400. We don't really know what to expect out of Calgary in this game. Somebody's got to make some plays for them, so I'm crossing my fingers that it's Ambles. And then as far as the defense goes, um, I have gone with the BC Lions versus Ottawa for 4,700. I just feel that Ottawa is continuing to struggle to put up points, and if BC can put some pressure on Matt Nichols, he's going to make some mistakes. Who have you got rounding out your squad? I like your Ambles pick, by the way. Kamar Jordan from the Stampeders. Playing against Winnipeg, I know Blue Bombers' defense is tough. They're ranked fifth, though, overall, which, interesting stat. Jake Winnicky is the other one that I've got for the Montreal Alouettes. Now, that is a third-ranked Hamilton Tiger Cats defense, according to DraftKings. 6,600, though, value pick for a guy that's averaging 19.4 points per game. That's the best of anyone that I've got going for me right now, including the quarterback. Defense, again, I cannot walk away from the Blue Bombers. As much as I think 
They may give up some yards. They may even give a couple points to the one defense out there that I can almost trust they're going to score. And they're going to get some sacks and possibly some interceptions as well. They put a lot of pressure on opposition quarterbacks. Um, as If you're listening closely, I have shied completely away from that Montreal-Hamilton game because I just don't know what's going to happen in that one. If I invested a lot of money on somebody like Banks, he might have a really poor game. I'm leaving him off, so he may go off and get three touchdowns. I just can't figure out what's going to happen in that one, so I've just left myself in the hands of the Calgary-Winnipeg-BC-Ottawa games. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.